What's up, everybody? I'm Mike Wilson with Any Hour Services, and we're proud to help bring you this podcast. If you ever need a resource for information about your home's electrical, plumbing, heating, or air conditioning system, you can find Any Hour Services on Facebook, YouTube, or online at anyhourservices.com. Get to Old Navy for Star Spangled Style. Right now, everything's on sale, up to 60% off. That's right, get everything from tees, shorts, dresses, and swim, all at 60% off. Now till July 7th at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid through 7-7, select styles only. Welcome to Ideation Collective. I'm Jess Larson. Today on the show, we've got Chad Lott. And I, I think that when you can pull two things that don't seem similar together, it, uh, they, they help illuminate uh, points that you might not normally get. This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series where we interview pro athletes, world-class musicians, CEOs, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. Before we get rolling, we want to invite you to get involved in the charity our founders helped start called Child Rescue. We work to combat child sex trafficking in the U.S. and globally. The top project you could help with now is in Cusco, Peru. There are 20 girls that the local government rescued but didn't have anywhere to keep them safe, so they put them in jail. The government has said that they're willing to give custody of these kids to the aftercare facility we're helping to expand now once we raise enough money and build an extra building there. To learn more, please click on the Child Rescue tab on our website, which is iCollective.co. So with that out of the way, let's get to the interview. <laughs> sure. Um, well, let's talk about something. You know, before we got started today, I was I was saying, hey, what about somebody who you know, their startup is, is maybe on the edge and they're really looking for that boost. So, you know, they're, they're getting into content marketing and they want to up their game on copywriting. What should they do? And, and I liked your reaction. Why don't, like, why don't you talk about what you think they should do instead? And, uh, let's talk about that approach. Yeah. You know, so, uh, you should really be thinking about your product a uh, really a lot. And some people, you know, and think about like, who is your product for? Like, I really like the idea of like thinking about an audience, like who, who is the audience for this piece? Like, um, you know, you see horror movies are just perennial, perennially made in Hollywood. And I, and the reason why is because, you know, people kind of know that there's already an audience there for that. So, you know, when you're, when you're creating and concepting, uh, a product, you really think about like, who's going to buy it. And then when you're thinking about those kind of people, and if you're doing the right research and you really know which know a lot about your product, uh, you can really start thinking about like the way those people interact with each other in their own communities. So, for instance, uh, you know, grass-fed beef, right? Like when if I'm a ranch and I'm bringing a product to market and I'm thinking about recipes for value-added project products like sausages and you know bacon and things like that, I might look at, okay, who's really interested in grass-fed stuff. And so I might look to people who are on like the Whole30 diet, or I might look towards uh, famous bloggers like uh, Michelle Tam from Nom Nom Paleo, who she's, she's, she's my favorite food, food blogger because, um, you know, she has really good take on like paleo diet stuff, but she makes everything for her family, you know, so they're very kid-friendly meals and they're really easy to crank out. So, uh, you know, big, bold flavors, easy to write about. So I might be thinking about all that stuff and like, okay, well, I'm, there's a bunch of grass fed meat companies, but maybe these people are all want low sugar. So maybe I come out with a product that's like a sugar-free bacon, which is actually a pretty rare product. Um, and so now all of a sudden I have like a product that's sort of geared towards a community. Now all I have to do is mine the community for language and think about how they talk and how they talk to each other. And uh, that really lets you 
be more conversational. And, and it also like narrows your focus when you're trying to think of like what's already been done. Because the thing that always pops out when, with copy is if it's, uh, if it's unique or, you know, like the worst copy in the world is any sort of uh, variation of the Got Milk ad campaign. Like I've never been able to figure out which copywriter came out with Got Milk, but it's the most copied campaign of all time. So if you have something like Got Beer or yeah. Got Whatever, it's so God, it's so brutally boring that <laughs> yeah, it's done. It's been done. Yeah, it's never going to pop out. Um, but you know, some some companies uh, brevity is really important. You know, it doesn't matter what your product is. Uh, can you make your language cleaner and tighter? Uh, something I recommend for anybody thinking about copywriting for their own company or or even as a career is um, I it took a lot of inspiration from George Orwell's uh, essay on political speech writing. And so he has like these 10 rules in there. And, you know, one of them is don't use jargon when you can explain something in everyday language. Mm. And that's a that's a pretty good broad rule for copywriting. Unless you're selling something to some super nerds, then you would maybe want to use the jargon uh, to, to, to signal that you are on the inside, you know, uh, it's really like thinking about your audience is really important for copywriting. Sure. Um, what about in a different vein? I know you do a lot of freelance, um, people, people seek you out for that on the side. Um, mm -hmm. you, you've obviously got this deep knowledge in the, in the food side of things on, on the freelance side. Um, how much of this similar vein of like mixing things to come up with something novel or, or integrating pop culture. Like, is that a style that c carries over in your freelance work also? Yeah, it, it sure does. Um, so say you came up to me and you were wanted me to write for something that I don't really know anything about, like, like bank loans or something like that. Um, you know, one, one of the kind of like competitive unfair advantages that I have is that I could read really quickly and I'm really good at research. So I, I can go through you know, some sort of, you know, research process where I find out some interesting things about the company. And then I try to learn about the company I'm working for. Um, and then usually when I'm talking to a client in the beginning, you know, I, I try to think about like, do I even want to take on this client at all? Like if it's something I just don't care about, it's going to be really hard for me to, to do research on it. And then I'm not going to do a great job. So I, I and then I have other copywriter friends that I might pass that along to who have better expertise. Like, uh, like for instance, I don't really write in any sort of like music category or anything like that. But I have a buddy named Jacob who's a phenomenal copywriter. He's a technical copywriter, and he's really, really into new music. So I might pass on like a, a music catalog assignment onto him just because he's my buddy and I know he's going to do a good job. Um, you know, like being really aware of like what you can and can write to really well and fast is a really good thing to know. And when you're selecting copywriters. If you're a company and you're selecting, I mean, definitely think about people who are already kind of writing in your field, you know, because they're going to have, you know, they're going to be able to go through that and learn faster. Uh, does that answer your question? Yeah, I think that so. Kind of talk around it. Yeah. I mean, um, definitely. One of the things about rhetoric is it gives you a, like a certain way of looking at things. So you're like, OK, well, no matter what this thing is that I'm looking at, humans are involved. And humans have kind of like base reactions to things. You know, they have, you know, fight or flight. Um, you know, I, I think that like any good ad campaign will appeal to at least, if not more than one of the seven deadly sins. You know, uh, <laughs> like <laughs> I think, I think when you're writing copy or coming up with ads, like think about which deadly sin that you're uh, 
that your product marketing can appeal to, uh, whether it be uh, pride or gluttony or something like that, you know, and that always puts you in the right, like, just think about the human aspect. It doesn't really, it sort of doesn't even matter what, what it is, you know, like I, I read, I, I would like books about salesmen from like the fifties and sixties. And what I liked about all these old time sales guys is it didn't matter what they were selling. They had kind of a technique for selling and they would just, the product was just uh, an X in the equation. And, you know, you would go seek the person who was looking for the X and then use, use your equation. You know, like sales language is pretty, it's pretty consistent. You know, like you, you have to communicate uh, a, a product benefit to the consumer. Uh, you know, you want to get out of the way of that. You, uh, if you have a tricky product, you want to be able to inoculate the consumer against objections. So all those old school, like how to win friends and influence people books mm-hmm. are, are great for copywriters to read because you're ultimately trying to get somebody to do something, which is to buy your product. And all those levers of influence are all basically the same. And, and they're, they're all good to keep in mind. And then the language is just like filigree. It just changes around. I mean, there's some things like keep it short, don't use jargon, uh, don't repeat words. There, there's some rules that you can apply, but but you know, knowing about that, like it's ultimately humans that are going to be looking at the thing is really important. Sure. You know, one of the questions we always like to ask guests is, uh, you know, about someone who maybe set an example for them early in their career or early in life of how to treat others mm-hmm. and any ways that that you try to emulate them. Is there somebody that comes to mind right off the bat of anybody that sticks out to you as setting an example for how to treat others? Yeah, I think, you know, my dad's a bartender, right? So he has, um, and I, and I was a bartender for a really long time. And I think about how, you know, he treated bartending as kind of like a stage and like somebody would come up to him and you know what they want. They want a drink, right? So, and that's like a a customer. A customer wants to buy something. It doesn't really matter what they want to buy. And you want to make it as easy and as inviting for that person to take that action as possible. You know, and he 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 is to this day still bartending and he still wears a tuxedo tie. He still he looks like the dude on the grenadine bottle. You know, he's got um He's kind of funny. He looks like kind of how like modern mixology bartenders try to look. Like he has a mustache and all this stuff. He's like in his 70s. Um, and I think about like that idea of making it easy and making it inviting, I think is really a good thing to think about. Yeah. You know, I feel like, uh, you have a unique talent to talk about potentially contra, well, not potentially to talk about very controversial things and to talk about the extremes of society and stuff in ways that doesn't invite people to become emotional in a negative way. Mm-hmm. What do you what do you credit that skill to? Like you you're able to be curious and debate things without getting people's back up. What do you what do you credit that to? Well, I, I you know I credit to like really being pretty empathetic to uh, not wanting to upset somebody. Like I'm my, my I'm not trying to upset people. I think that's like kind of like the difference between a debater and a troller. You know, a troll is it like you know, the oh, what's the ultimate aim? My ultimate aim is, you know, to either be smarter from talking to somebody or convince the other person to do something. And ultimately, I'm not really trying to convince anybody of anything. So I think that pressure is off. You know, like for instance, I you know I <clears throat> I live in San Francisco. I actually live in Oakland now, but I live in the Bay Area, and people are pretty on fire about Bernie Sanders. 
And I'm not super on fire about Bernie Sanders um, for, for just different reasons. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think the fact that I'm very like, I like to think, keep things pretty funny. You know, I'm not, I never try to make somebody feel stupid. You know, I, I think that there's a, a tendency when you're arguing or debating or explaining a dangerous idea that you're trying to create an out group and an in group. And I'm ultimately not trying to do that. Like I'm, I'm just trying to understand better. And I think people just pick that up. Yeah. I also feel like you're not very threatened by people not agreeing with you. Oh yeah. I don't care at all. You know, I mean, it, it doesn't matter to me if somebody does or doesn't agree with me because they're either going to have a good or bad argument. And if it's a bad argument, I'm just like, okay, I can just completely ignore this person. And the one bad habit I might have is I might eventually get to a point of just dismissing people outright kind of, you know, if they just have consistently terrible ideas, I just rock the 80, 20 rule on humans all the time. (laughs) And, you know, yeah, but you know what? Here's the thing. A lot of people would say that, you know, how many people say, I don't care what people think, but if you watch their actions, that's just not realistic. I feel like you legitimately, well, I, I think there's also, you have a unique willingness to be influenced where you're like legitimately willing to question your previous position depending on their answer. And I wonder if that makes it more inviting for people to talk to you. I think so. You know, I think one thing too is like when you read my blog, I think that um, a person might have a hard time like picking up what I'm all about. You know, like you might, you might, like for instance, I am not a Trump supporter, but I've made two separate large bets that Trump's going to be president. And the reason why, you know, is (laughs) just is what's coming out now. You know, like very early on, I thought that um, I just thought he would crush the field. And the reason why I even thought that is because of a weirdo that I like reading, which is Scott Adams, the guy that writes Dilbert, like months and months ago. when, Yeah, when he was, you know, I I think I have kind of some similarities to him and that like I'm ultimately just curious and I I find that like like scratching that curious itch is is pleasurable, you know, and I I also find that when you get in an argument with somebody, you're kind of shutting down uh, your ability to even learn from somebody, you know. So when I say like somebody has a bad idea and then I cut them off, I mean that it's okay if I, I think their idea is really dumb, but if it's really well reasoned or I, I can tell where they're coming from, or there's like an, or, or especially if there's an aesthetic reason why they've chosen it. Like for instance, like your Bernie Sanders supporter, the reason why I really get them is because ultimately he seems to want to do nice things for people. <clears throat> and I totally believe that that's a really admirable urge. So I know that when I'm talking to somebody who's like a, a bleeding hard Bernie Sanders person, that's a person who's really just trying to make the world better. Where I differ is I don't think you should make the world better with somebody else's money. You know, I, I think it's kind of up to you. And so that's that's where like where my where I would break from him as a as a voter, you know. Um, but, yeah. Well, and yeah. I'm just I'm just laughing here because, you know, out of the last 60 interviews, you're the first guy to be able to get to be able to wiggle politics into the interview. <laughs> oh, I'm addicted. I mean, I'm really bad so, it. I, I found that it's made me really unhappy. And the ones <laughs> is I'm not. I went and took that. Um, there's this really cool website where it's like, who do I agree with dot com or something like that, and it basically, uh, like, you put in kind of how you feel on certain issues, how how um, married to them or not, or how important they are. You know, what, not. can we can we do that one over again? 
Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Let's hold on. JJ, shut up. Crystal, you got to make him not bark. Okay, sorry. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, let's go from uh, talk about politics, I guess. Yeah, you know what? It's it's okay. I don't even. I'm not even worried about that. I just think it's funny <laughs> that like, you know, politics, religion. I don't know what else you're not supposed to talk about. But like, where I'm trying to do the innovation show, I like have intentionally steered everyone else away. But it's so natural for you that it's like actually natural. Like it doesn't bug me. It came up right. But, well, I think uh, you know, in Freemasonry, like when Freemasons meet, there's like a rule against talking about politics and religion, and it's one of the things that allows people from all these different. Uh, segments of society to meet and greet and be friends with each other and get things done. Um, and, you know, like I, I, maybe this is interesting to your listeners, but I, you know, I'm a, a, a relatively new member of a Freemason Lodge here in California and uh, Cal Lodge number one, which was the lodge that Mark Twain belonged to, uh, but he didn't pay his dues. So they kind of like, I don't know, they never kicked him out because he was so awesome, but you know, <laughs> he, he didn't pay his dues. Uh, but you know, one of the things that's really interesting about it is you're sitting down with these people who are completely different. I mean, you have like a Palestinian dude sitting next to a Jewish guy and a guy who owns a car dealership sitting next to a, a, you know, a bicycle anarchist. I mean, it's, it's maybe not an anarchist, but like a, a pro bike dude, you know, and, you know, by taking like politics and religion kind of out of the conversational mix it does tend to make people kind of happier. But where, where I sort of like break from that a little bit is they're really important things to people and people's attitudes on those things can really tell you a lot about somebody. Uh, but the tendency and the unfortunate tendency is to, is to put yourself on a team and defend that team no matter what. And so I'm kind of like not really on a team. Like I took, we were just talking about that, um, that website where you can go in and put like how, where I think it's like where I stand or who I agree with.com. And then you put, you answer like all these questions and then you say how important or not important those things are to you. And then you get a list of presidential candidates and that tells you who you agree with mostly like by percentage point. And I didn't know any of the dudes, like the top four people that like had my same political beliefs. I didn't know who they were. Mm-hmm. Like I had no, no idea. Um, and then, like, the mainstream candidates were really low. Like, I had, like, 50% agreement with Hillary Clinton, like, 50% agreement with Trump. Um, you know, so I don't know if that means, like, I'm a weirdo or... Yeah, it definitely or, means well, that, I'm sure. I was actually <laughs> yeah. going to bring that up, but you brought it up first. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, okay, next one. We are always asking people about, you know, books they have influenced them or books they think innovators should be reading. But before we get to that, I want to start with podcasts you're like sure. you and ryan clements are like two of the main people i started the show saying if ryan and chad like this show then i'm <laughs> then i'm going somewhere so mm. obviously this show but besides this show what else what other podcasts do you like man i'm a, a full-on addict uh for different podcasts so I, i'll just go through the ones that i'm really into right now um mike Rowe has a podcast called the way i heard it which are these it's great for people who are who are busy um, they're only five minutes long and he tells a little story about some weird little quirky American historical figure or some global historical figure and the way he, or even like a pop cultural person, the way he starts it off is he just tells this, starts telling you a story, like the way he heard it. And it'll be like, you know, I just want to tell you about this guy. He was an actor and he came to Hollywood and he had an old face and, but he was a young man and, 
you know, this old face kept him from getting work and blah, blah, blah. And he goes on. And, and then you're kind of trying to figure out who it is. And at the very end, there's like a reveal. And he's like, and that person was John Hamm who played Don Draper. And you're like, oh, man, it's cool. And, but like micro, I think, is a really u- unique American talent. And he has like this super highfalutin, you know, just effete tastes and things. He's like very much into literature and philosophy and art. But he spends all of his time hanging out with plumbers and stuff. So he has this really phenomenal way with language where he's bridging uh, the everyday with with the academic. I think it's just great. Um, another podcast that I really like is The Read. And it's uh, it's basically uh, a, like a Black Lives Matter, queer gender theory kind of podcast. Or it's like this, uh, this guy named Kid Fury and his partner, Crystal. And I think she's a lesbian and he's definitely gay. And they just talk about black culture and leftist culture. And it's so smart and it's so funny. And I'm really not oriented towards their politics at all, but they're very smart and I love to listen to them because I, I feel like I learn like different perspectives on things that I normally wouldn't pick up. Uh, that one's great. Uh, there's another podcast called The Federalist, which I really love, Federalist Radio Hour. It's kind of more of a um, – it's a conservative website, like kind of like a right-wing news site. But it never goes into like Fox News yelling territory. It, it's kind of like what uh, like a constitutional nerd might want to listen to. Um, and, and they have like pretty good handle and pop culture interests and things like that. Uh, I mean, I could keep going on. I don't want to have an hour of me talking about podcasts. I like, <laughs> we'll do another show, which yeah. by the way, everybody should know. I have talked Chad into coming to teach a class, um, for the, for the dojos, the classes we're going to be putting out for free online. So stay tuned for that. We'll have an announcement. Um, but, uh, another question we're always asking people is child rescue. Um, you know, trying to prevent, people from harming children, child sex trafficking, the charity we started. Um, we're always asking people for what advice they'd have for us, but where you're actually on the advisory board of Child Rescue and you've been a big help, why don't you talk about what it was about this cause that you decided you were going to devote some time to it? Well, I, what, the main thing was like meeting you, and when people are really excited about things, it's really easy for me to get excited, um, especially if, it's, if they have excitement plus action. Uh, which you which you do and child rescue does you know and the fact that like you guys hey we're going to raise money for these actions that these direct actions to help kids and uh and then you told me like about some thing that you went to go do you know you went on like some sting operation i was like whoa he's actually doing this thing uh so that was really appealing to me and then the other thing was like right when you first started asking me if i had any ideas i went and read a lot i read as much as i could about the the subject and the thing that there was this statistic that just like punched me in the stomach. And it was that right now there are more people in child slavery, child sex slavery, than there were ever slaves in America before the Civil War. And I thought that stat was incorrect when I first read it because it just seemed crazy. I, was, I just thought that there was no way. And I kept looking and I kept digging and I kept seeing those stats come up over and over again. And it's shocking, you know. And then the mainstream media seems to be picking up on it a little bit. You know, I like people are I, I'm starting to see more stories about Craigslist busts. And uh, one of the things I really Back like page. about. Yeah. And one of the things I really like about Child Rescue is it has that awareness of how people are getting these kids, because I think a lot of people in their brain, when they think child sex slave, they think that there's like a secret. I mean, there is kind of like a secret society, but they think that there's like a brothel in a weird place in town. It's like an eyes wide shut scenario. And like the mundanity 
or the, the mundaneness of how a lot of these crimes are committed is, is shocking to me. I mean, the fact that it's just like a burner cell phone, a Craigslist ad in a hotel room is where a lot of it happens, you know, and that, that's just such like low tech evil. And it just, you know, and I, I, I believe that evil needs to be fought and you can't sit, you know, it's like, you can't just wish it away. You can't, you have to go after it. Well, one thing I can say is it, it has taken effect. I mean, to the point where nowadays you are seeing um, that at least uh, there has been people get involved. Like, for instance, with Craigslist cutting off their adult listings and it not mm-hmm. happening anymore. Like, that's a great move. I mean, you wish the people at Village Voice would, would do that with Backpage instead of letting it continue to be the way that children get rented out to adults. Yeah. Um, but, you know, truck, stop, truck stops and um, strip clubs and, you know, certainly in San Francisco, the massage parlors. Um, yeah, I mean, the same thing in the major cities, but, but specifically, you know, that's a major issue out there. Um, it, it is interesting how it kind of gets hidden under the guise of willing participation, right? And it, right. And, you know, out here in, in, in San Francisco, there's a, a pretty interesting and you know, like a, a pretty interesting, uh, you know, sex positive culture, you know, and I have a, a buddy who's a porn star and he works for like kink.com and he, he's involved in some really super extreme shit. Um, so stuff, sorry. And you're going to get, I'm going to get you the explicit label, but you know, so you have this kind of narrative that it's people choosing this life. And, and, you know, I definitely have met these people who are like involved in pretty crazy sex work that weren't abused, that just kind of chose it, they're just kind of into it. But I think that's pretty rare, you know. Uh, I, I think that, you know, these village voice or whatever, they let the stuff run in the back. And ultimately, it's about money. You know, they're collecting money for those ads, and they're like, they want to pretend that, oh, you know, this is just a bunch of, like, union sex workers that are, like, you know, gender studies, master's degree holders that just decided to go off and do all this stuff. But it's sort of not, you know, it, 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 it's just not. And even if it was the case, like, like what percentage of child exploitation do you allow to let your business model thrive? <laughs> no, yeah, what's I, your acceptable degree? Like, when you think about how many is okay for you, what's that number? Yeah, I mean, it's like you have 30 ads and two of them. I mean, two is too many. Yeah, right? Yeah. Okay, let's go back to books. Uh, tell us about books that had big influences on your life. Well, you know, this is like about as cliche as it gets. But when I was in high school, I read Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And then I read On the Road. And I thought, that's how you write. <laughs> you know, you go out and do something super insane. And then you write about it. And so so that a lot of those beat books were really super influential to me uh, in my life. And then... Uh, yeah, P.S., yep. didn't you tell me you rode, like, a Vespa across the country? Oh, yeah, yeah. I've done some pretty uh, wild endurance stuff on really small bikes. And uh, <laughs> how how I came out to San Francisco was uh, I worked in a coffee shop with a bunch of skateboarders from Michigan. And they were all into vintage Vespas, like these 30-year-old scooters. And I had been into motorcycles, like vintage motorcycles, so we were all friends. Because uh, when, when, you, when you're into old, cool stuff, 
it doesn't really matter what it is. Like you develop an appreciation for preserved old things. Like if you're a weirdo collector of vintage fishing rods, I'm probably going to get along with you, even though I don't care about fishing at all. You know, so there was there there's like this mutual friendship with these guys. And then, you know, I had a bad breakup and didn't have anything going on. So I was like, I'm gonna go across country with these guys. So we built I built a scooter, drove it across country, and ran out of money in San Francisco. And how many years ago was that? Uh it was in two thousand. <laughs> sixteen years later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So sixteen years later, I'm I'm still pretty close. I, I moved to West Oakland about six months ago. You're making but, your way back. You're making your way yeah, back. I'm slowly creeping back towards the southeast, hopefully one day. Uh one day Mrs. Lott will let me move back to New Orleans. Um <laughs> hopefully she will come with me. Um yeah, so I just drove drove that bike across country and you know, and, and that's probably really one of the first indicators I ever got that like subcultures were international and in some case global because I came out to San Francisco and I didn't know anybody. I mean, I didn't know a soul, but I had this cool old Vespa. And so it put me in contact with a scene of people who were into cool old Vespas in San Francisco. And to this day, like my best friend is a dude I met at the shop when my bike broke down, you know, that like, and you scored a former model for a wife out of the Vespa world. Yeah, that's how I met my wife. You know, she was at a scooter rally, you know, and she's like, you know, scooter, the scooter scene is not known for attracting the most beautiful woman, women in the world. But, you know, <laughs> there's one that was super pretty and I got her. <laughs> 80-20 rule. Just keep on going. 80, totally, totally. 20 of the 20 of the 20, right? Yep. So um, anything else that you feel like as you see startup culture and people trying to influence others that you feel like, if you hadn't spent so many years trying to influence people, you wouldn't have figured out. Yeah, I think that, you know, there's this like, I think it's a biblical thing, but it's like those convinced against their will are of the same opinion still. It's like your trickery can go only go so far. You really need to have like the right product for the right person and and really concentrate on, on, on that connection more than anything. You know, you have the right product, the right person, then your marketing efforts are pretty easy. You know, you're just trying to say why somebody should do something in a pretty breezy way. And um, another thing I see that people kind of go a little wrong with is uh, an overemphasis on education of potential customers or potential parties. Uh, Most people are absorbing the education that they receive just from broad culture. So it's very hard for your company to come along and like, re-educate a person you know like like i sold grass-fed beef before and after the omnivores dilemma came out and before that book came out you would say all this stuff to people and then you would have like 10 minutes of explaining it and then you know after the book came out it was such a broad cultural idea that people just kind of picked up on it i mean you're you're trying to get a pitch it should be pretty quick it should be pretty easy uh it shouldn't make somebody mad you know, like I learned that lesson is like, like you can get what you want or you can be right. And I would rather get what I want, you know? So sometimes, you know, trying to convince somebody who doesn't, isn't ready to be convinced is just wasted effort, you know? So that 80, 20 rule again. Yeah. Being real selective about what you're writing copy for. huh? And that's, what's really exciting about modern marketing is that like, you can be very targeted these days. You know, they used to say, you know, 50% of our marketing works. The only problem is we don't know which 50% it is. Now, 
you have a pretty good idea of what works, you know, and you just build on that. With all the analytics available, huh? Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, the analytics thing, it, it, it's like ultimately you're talking to people. And I think that when you're writing copy or you're writing a message or crafting an argument is really just keep in mind that it's a human and they, you know, they have family and they want to go home to somebody and, you know, they have probably the same concerns you do. Like one of the things I'm, I'm doing this blog project right now where I'm writing a, a blog post every day for 365 days. And some of it's, some of it's pretty raw, you know, it, it's some pretty revealing stuff that I think a lot of people might not themselves be really comfortable, but every single post that I've been afraid to post, I was like, Oh shit, people are going to think I'm an, a an idiot or they're going to think I'm like a creep or something like that. Those posts always end up with emails like, Oh my God, I felt exactly the same way. So I think just being in touch with your own urges and your own ideas and really being comfortable with that lets you tap into other people's ideas faster. Great. Well, listen, thanks for making time. Um, this is great, and we're excited to uh, get working on the class with you. Yeah, it's exciting. I, I've, I've taught a copywriting course and a communication course at Whole Foods Market for a couple of years now, and people seem to really like it. It's really fun, um, and it's kind of all over the place. And um, hope and all the people who've taken it actually they never bother me for copy anymore, which is I don't know if it's a good thing or bad, but <laughs> you know, yeah, awesome. Okay, thanks again. Talk to you soon. All right, man. Later. And that was part two of our interview. If you missed part one, please go back an episode and download the episode before this one for the first half of the interview. As always, please check iCollective.co for show notes of things referenced during the interview and to learn more about our guest. And if you're interested, we'd love to have you learn more about the Cherry Child Rescue. Go to the menu page on iCollective and click on Child Rescue. Thanks so much. Get to Old Navy for star-spangled style. Right now, everything's on sale, up to 60% off. That's right, get everything from tees, shorts, dresses, and swim, all at 60% off. Now till July 7th at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid through 7-7, select styles only.